anything. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches how important it is for us to be in right relationship to God. A number of terms are used to describe this. It's the it's fellowship with God, which is a very active term. When you have a close relationship with somebody and having fellowship with them, it's not just having a static relationship. It's enjoying the benefits and blessings of that relationship. When we sin, that is broken. That rapport goes away until we confess our sin. And when we do, that rapport is instantly regained. It's also described as walking by the Spirit or abiding in Christ. And it is a uh, vital part of our spiritual life. Without it, we are not growing or advancing in the spiritual life. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are in fellowship. Then I open in prayer. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so very grateful that we have this opportunity and the time to get, come together to focus upon you and upon your word. We're thankful that we have the New Testament. We're confident that it is your word, that it has been revealed to you, and that you have preserved it down through the centuries. Father, as we come to your word, we know that you teach us in many different ways, and that every word is designed for our edification and to strengthen us to one degree or another. Now, Father, as we continue our study on the background of First Peter in terms of the study of its author, Peter, pray that you'd help us to see the flow of spiritual growth in his life and, its, and understand how you used him in a unique and distinct way in the early church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, you might as well open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we're in the third phase, and we'll wrap it up tonight on the life of Peter. Peter, as we studied previously, was a fisherman, the son of Jonas, or the son of John. He's the brother of Andrew. They were among the first disciples that gathered around the Lord. Uh, Andrew is specifically stated to have been a disciple of John the Baptist, And when John the Baptist introduced the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, both before and then after the 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, uh, Andrew was there, witnessed that, and decided to leave John the Baptist and to follow Jesus. And he got his brother to come with him. And so they were among the first disciples. They were in a business a profitable commercial fishing business with their father as well as their partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who also were disciples. So uh, it's a close-knit group. They lived in Capernaum, which was a uh, fairly decent-sized village and and thriving commercial fishing village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was about a year after the initial 
uh, meeting with Jesus and following him that they were called to leave everything behind and to follow him uh, exclusively uh, as as p- part of the 12 disciples. Peter's distinct and unique because he was said by the Lord Jesus Christ to be a leader in the group that he, the Lord Jesus Christ gave him a new name, uh, Petros or Kephas in the, in the Hebrew or Aramaic meaning rock and that he is seen in the gospels to be a uh, leader of the, the 12 uh, disciples. He is often the one who speaks. He is outspoken. He, often he speaks before he thinks. And as we think about Peter in the Gospels, we see a lot of problems in Peter's life. He's, he's, uh, forthright. He's, he's, he, his enthusiasm overruns his, his, his thinking, uh, many times. But we see in his heart that he really wants to follow the Lord. That's why when the Lord comes walking out to the, to the boat with the disciples in it in the midst of a storm at night, uh, and Jesus is walking on the water. Peter wants to do that too. Lord, let me come to you. And so we see that level of enthusiasm. We also see uh, the failures in Peter that instead of keeping his eyes focused on the Lord, he focuses on the waves and begins to sink beneath the beneath the water, which is a great picture of the fact that we need to focus on the Lord to stay above the turmoil and the strife of life. But that when we take our eyes off of the Lord, then often the strife of life overwhelms us. So this is a picture we see of Peter. The Lord Jesus Christ warned Peter that he would betray, uh, betray him or deny him. And uh, Peter said, no, Lord, not, not I. But then he denied the Lord three times the night before the Lord went to the cross. We see him then not at the cross uh, as John was at the cross. But Peter is in, in hiding Peter is fearful. Peter is overwhelmed by guilt. And the next time, I pointed out last time, the next time we see him is is after the uh, crucifixion, actually after the resurrection, early that Sunday morning, when um, <clears throat> Mary Magdalene runs to get John and Peter, and then they run to the tomb. And John stopped outside the door. Peter rushes headlong inside. I pointed out last time that we know from two passages of Scripture, the passage related to the the conversation Jesus had with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We don't know who they they were. They were not part of the twelve. They were just other disciples. We also know from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 4 through 6, that Jesus appeared to Peter before he appeared to the twelve. That indicates that it was the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to Peter in a private moment to uh, forgive him of his denial. Now, the reason I pointed that out is as we think our way through Peter in the Gospels, we see Peter warts and all. How many warts do we see in Acts? Not, not too many. But the only wart I can see on Peter in Acts is that he's a little hesitant to uh, respond to the Lord's command to uh, go to the Gentiles or to treat the unclean as clean. He's just a little hesitant, Not doesn't stop him, doesn't delay him. He's, he, it, this just goes against all of his background, all of his training, uh, everything that made him a, a Jew. But after that, uh, he has no problem at all anywhere in the book of Acts with going to the Gentiles after the Lord has told him that they are now clean. We will look at a passage 
where he does fall by the wayside on that and and has a confrontation with Paul that's given to us in uh, Galatians chapter 2. But if we look at the book of Acts, we just don't see any problems with Peter. So that's significant because after the Lord has his conversation with Peter in Matthew 16 and says, I'm going to give uh, you the keys of the kingdom, then that indicates a special role of leadership that goes to Peter. And that that is what gets developed, and we see that in the book of Acts. It's not anything like the Roman Catholic tradition that uh, tries to claim that he went to Rome and founded the church in Rome. There's absolutely no historical evidence for that whatsoever. Uh, there's no indication of any of the things that Roman Catholics claim as Peter is the first pope or the first bishop of Rome. In fact, I read in one account where there was a debate that took place between a Protestant and a Roman Catholic uh, priest, uh, deep focusing on the issue that there was a uh, that the first pope, the first bishop of Rome, to make a claim to uh, papal priority based upon the primacy of Peter doesn't come about until around 250 in the. Uh, Bishop of Rome at that time, the name was Stephen, and when this was brought up to the Roman Catholic priest in the debate, he said, well, that's that's just because all of the popes before Stephen were too humble to mention it. Oh, so that means all of the popes after him were arrogant. That's the flip side. So, you know, they're, they're, they just get caught and hoist on their own petard no matter how they try to argue it because there's no historical evidence of uh, anything in the sense of a papal succession, uh, succession in Rome. So we've gone through Peter in the early part of his uh, ministry with the Lord Jesus Christ, the last part where he, uh, last week we covered the Jesus warning that he would deny him, his denial, his forgiveness. It's interesting that on two specific occasions the issue of forgiveness was brought up and pointedly taught to Peter prior to uh, his denial. So that's really singled out. And then we looked at the end last time in John chapter 21, looking at the marching orders that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to Peter to uh, to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to obey him by feeding his sheep. And we looked at all the different nuances in those synonyms. So tonight we're continuing third time on uh, who is Peter, because Peter is the author of 1 Peter, and the first word in verse 1 is Peter. And Peter is writing to the resident aliens who are scattered uh, in the diaspora in the area of uh, western and northwestern, what is now Turkey. So we've looked at the background of Peter in the Gospels, and then tonight I want to go through Peter in Acts. So we're going to take a look at these different episodes. And first of all, we're going to look at Peter's leadership in the upper room. Basically, what we're going to see in Acts is the outworking of this principle that that Peter is given the keys to the king. Keys represented authority that was given often by a landowner to his manager. We would say in Texas that this the rancher would give his ranch manager the keys to the barn, and the ranch manager's responsibility would be to make sure that the cattle were fed and the pl- there were plenty of supplies in the barn, and then he would be in charge of distributing the supplies in the barn to the animals on the ranch. 
And that is a pretty good depiction of this, that the keys, if they represent anything other than authority, they would represent the gospel itself. And what we see in Acts is something very simple, is that as uh, as the door is open to the Jews in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, as the door to the church is open to the uh, Jews on, on uh, the day of Pentecost, and then open to the Samaritans, and then open to the Gentiles, each time in each event, it is Peter who is present. Peter is the authority, uh, the, the, the one who is the uh, in authority over the other uh, the other disciples. So when we come to the upper room, Acts chapter 1, this is the uh, story of the ascension when the Lord Jesus Christ is taken up into heaven. And in his last in his last instructions to the disciples, he told them, he referencing back to John the Baptist in verse 5, John baptized with water, but you shall, shall be future tense with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that tells us right away that this baptism by the Spirit is something that had not ever happened before. Now, I, I make a point out of that because there are some people, there are some in covenant theology who try to read baptism of the Holy Spirit back into the Old Testament. There are some, since on Tuesday night, we about a month ago, we completed our study of dispensationalism by looking at progressive dispensationalism. There are even some progressive dispensationalists who have floated that idea. And what I have found interesting is a lack of clarity on the part of some or many dispensationalists to to, to make the distinguishing mark of the church age, the baptism by the Holy Spirit. That's what starts it all. There is something new that happens, something radical that happens. Romans chapter 6, which we have studied, says that we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, the sin nature is no longer an authority over us. We're no longer slaves to the sin nature. That's the baptism by the Holy Spirit. It never happened from from the day that Adam sinned until the day of Pentecost. It had never happened to any believer At any point in time, they were still just as much enslaved to their sin nature after they were saved as before, and we are not. And that is a vital and significant truth for the church-age believer. And this is what Jesus is prophesying. He's saying, this is going to happen a few days from now. And so as they come together, he says further that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon them in verse 8. And they are to be witnesses, legal term, they are to go forth as witnesses of uh, Jesus in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. Three circles of influence. Jerusalem's the tiniest area, and then broadening out to the areas surrounding Jerusalem, Samaria and Judea, and then even further still to the end, end of the earth. And instantly after that, he is taken up to be in heaven. Now, the disciples, after they get over the, the shock of watching the first person blast off into outer space from earth, they went back to Jerusalem, crossing the Kidron Valley, walking up the slope of Mount Zion on the far side, headed back to wherever the location was for the upper room. And we're given the last list of the disciples in verse 13. 
And Peter is the first one. In every list of the disciples, Peter is listed first, indicating his uh, role of leadership among the uh, disciples. And we're told that they had a continued in a lengthy prayer meeting for several uh, several days, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers who weren't believers until after the resurrection. And during that time, they held a meeting with a number of other disciples who were joining them for this time of prayer, and there were 120 there, and this is when they made this decision to include another disciple to take the place of Judas Iscariot. And we studied that in detail. The point that I am making here is that Peter Peter goes through a, a rationale uh, from the Scripture as he does this, going back in verse 20, quoting from Psalm 69, 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8, and arguing uh, for the inclusion of a new member in their in their group, and they choose uh, Matthias as uh, one of them, and he's numbered with them among the 11 disciples. So he would have been part of their leadership group during the coming uh, coming weeks, months, and years in Jerusalem. We never hear from him again, but frankly, we don't hear from any of the others again either. That's That's it. So that's not an argument for whether or not he truly was or had the spiritual gift of apostleship. And uh, but I'm not going to get off into that. I went through all the arguments on both sides and uh, the lessons covering that back in, in Acts. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost comes. Now, this again brings in an important feature that we're going to see that, that continues throughout Acts and is important to understand, and I'm going to develop this a lot more fully when we get into Peter, and that is that that the Jewish believers continue to observe the traditional holidays and feast days set aside for in, in the Mosaic Law. Now, they don't do it because it's in the Mosaic Law. They do it because that is their cultural history and tradition. You can do these things for many different reasons, and we studied this, that, that um, uh, Paul vociferously refused to have uh, Titus circumcised as a as a Gentile when the Judaizers were emphasizing that circumcision according to the Mosaic law was a requirement for salvation or sanctification. That was the that was the thinking of the Judaizers. And they were basing it on the Mosaic law. They were imposing the Mosaic law on the church and Paul opposed that. But when Timothy uh, needed to be circumcised because he wasn't circumcised as a child, Paul unhesitatingly circumcised him because the, it, there wasn't a theolog, a, an, er, an erroneous theological issue at stake. Circumcision isn't the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It's included within the Mosaic Covenant. It's the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. And if someone is a Jew, whether they are a believer or an unbeliever, they are still under the Abrahamic Covenant. And as such, they should be the males should be circumcised because that is part of the Abrahamic covenant. It has absolutely nothing to do with salvation. It has absolutely nothing to do with your spiritual life. It has nothing to do with sanctification. And that's what we need to understand because Peter is writing First Peter to 
these scattered Jewish believers in the diaspora. There is a Jewish focus to 1 Peter that is distinct from, let's say, Ephesians or Galatians or Romans. He's writing to a Jewish group of Christians dealing with specific issues that they were facing, just as James did. James is writing to uh, a Jewish audience. And um, 2 Peter uh, may be writing to that same group It's not specifically stated at the beginning of the epistle. Hebrews is also clearly targeted to a uh, Jewish Christian audience. And we have to understand there are a lot of issues related to that, but that's what we see is even though these are believers, even though they've been taught that the law is ended, that Christ was the end of the law, there's nothing wrong if you have the right theology with going to observe the feast days at the temple. They continued to do that. They continued to pray at the temple. All these different things were part of their spiritual life. So they went to uh, they went to the temple. But before they went, they were probably in the upper room. They were probably praying before they went to the temple that day. And there was a sudden rush of wind that they heard. It was like a tornado. sounded like a freight train moving uh, through the upper room filled the house, and then there was a visual effect as well. It appeared that there were tongues of fire that were over each one. And at that point, Luke says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's that word we studied before, pimplami, that usually precedes speaking. It's not the same word that's used in Ephesians 5.18, which is plerao, has a different significance. And they began to speak with other tongues. That should be translated with uh, foreign languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were speaking in known human languages, and they were known and understood by the uh, Jewish uh, worshipers who had come to, the, uh, come to the temple that day from all around the diaspora. And these are listed in verses 9, uh, 9 through 11. And from uh, those who have studied linguistics, I've been told that there were uh, 12 distinct language groups here, and so that would make sense that each in, each of the 12 was given the gift of speaking in a particular language so that they could speak to each of these 12 different language groups that were uh, present in, in the temple that day. And there were others, though, that rejected it. They just heard people speaking in what appeared to be gibberish to them. And so they accused them of being drunk, but it's only already 9 o'clock in the morning. And so Peter stood up and gives his first sermon. And this is a remarkable sermon where he uh, goes to Joel uh, Joel 2, 28 and uh 29, and he quotes from that to show a parallel between this miraculous work of God the Holy Spirit and what was predicted to take place at the end of the tribulation period at the time of the day of the Lord. All he's doing is saying this is like that. There are similarities, and God the Holy Spirit can perform uh, things of this nature. And then he concludes by challenging the men uh, there that they are to uh, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies him as the one who was delivered up by God's uh, determined purpose and foreknowledge, and that uh, they crucified him and put him to death, but God raised him up, and that this was prophesied from the Old Testament, quoting from, from David. And then 
he goes on and gives this this uh, gospel presentation explaining who Jesus is and what his current role is, uh, that he's now ascended into heaven, verses 34 and 35, and seated at the right hand uh, of the Father. And so when they heard this, verse 37, the response to Peter's message, uh, they were cut to the heart and and uh, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? And Peter said, repent. And that's, that's y'all repent. It's very important to understand that it's a second person plural command there. And then it's let each one of you be baptized. That's singular. In other words, all of you repent. That means turn to the Lord. Those who do should be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the phrase for the remission of sins is tied to repentance or turning, and the result would be that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the mark of the church age. And it's still distinctively Jewish. Now, we're told in verse 41 that there were about 3,000 who responded to the gospel on that particular day. Now, the next day, you turn to chapter 3, and this is uh, the third point here, uh, Peter, James, and John, uh, I mean, P- Peter and John go to the temple uh, the next day, and there's a lame man outside the temp- t- uh, entry to the temple at the gate beautiful. And so he is begging alms, seeking to sustain himself. Peter and John fixed their eyes on him and said, uh, Peter very famously says in verse 6, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, then he stands up and he walks. Now, the point of this is it fits the pattern of Jesus' Jesus' miracles, that the disciples have been invested with the power of the Messiah to carry on the Messiah's ministry. And so they continue to uh, perform in miracles just as, as Jesus did. Now, we studied all of this when we went through Acts, but we see again that Peter is the spokesperson. John doesn't say anything. John's going to disappear after a couple of more chapters, but John never says anything. It's always Peter. Peter is presented as the, as the leader here. So Peter is opening the door to salvation, to the church, to the kingdom, which we will all be in the kingdom eventually, uh, through the gospel presentation in these chapters. So that tells us by implication that the the way to get into the door is through positive response to the gospel. It still has a kingdom influence, as we studied at the uh, kingdom uh, tone, that because Peter says that if um, they would repent and be converted in verse 19, then the times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. It's still an offer uh, of the kingdom. So chapter 3, they heal the lame man. Peter is the key person at that particular time. And then uh, this causes such a row, such a response, that the that the pre- people and the priests and the captain of the temple, uh, including the Sadducees, uh, decide to do something about this. And so then they... Uh, arrest Peter and John at the beginning of chapter 4, and then they are taken uh, to the Sanhedrin. But uh, there's a re- uh, progress report given by, by Luke in verse 4, who says, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men, not counting the women and children, the number of men came to be about 5,000. So now we have uh, 
in terms of numbers, 8,000 who've become believers, but probably many, many more, maybe twice that number have become believers in just the first uh, first two days. The early church was primarily Jewish and stays Jewish until Peter goes to Cornelius, and that's that's the first uh, eight years of the church. It's primarily Jewish, and that's important to understand. The first four or five decades, the church is still predominantly Jewish, especially in the area of the Levant. Now, that's in the news now because the president insists on calling ISIS ISIL, and the L stands for Levant, and that covers the whole area around the uh, eastern end of the Mediterranean. Uh, So anyhow, uh, Peter and John are arrested. They come before the the Sanhedrin. In verse 8 of chapter 4, we read, Then Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, we have that word pimplemi. It always comes before something is said. And so Peter is, and it's, I think it's close to inspiration. There may not be inspiration for inscripturating or writing down scripture, but I think it's close to inspiration. That's the idea there. And so he addresses the rulers of the people, the Sanhedrin, the elders, and again he gives them the gospel. And in verse 11, in verse 11, he quotes from Psalm 118.22. Now, in our study of Matthew, we saw that the first hint of the use of this verse is in, the, in, in um, uh, Matthew 11, verse 4, when Jesus is responding to John the Baptist. In 11, 4, and 5, he responds to John the Baptist and, and, and uses a word indicating uh, that those who are offended by the ministry of Jesus and and John the Baptist, and that's the idea of the stone that is rejected by the builders. That's the first hint in Jesus' ministry referring to Psalm 118.22. Peter picks it up in this message, and he is going to quote it again in um, in First Peter chapter 2. And then after quoting it, he says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, why bear, whereby we must be saved. Now, the response to him is not positive by the Sanhedrin, and they um, they are uh, quite hostile to Peter and John, and they recognize that there is a is a serious problem because uh, everybody saw the miracle and they can't do anything to them personally at this point. So they just reprimand them and tell them not to speak. At all, or teach in the name of Judah, uh, in the name of Jesus, but they respond, verse 19, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So we see this courage now that Peter has that he didn't have just a, a, a few weeks before. When he was denying the Lord, now he has seen the resurrected Lord, he's been forgiven, and, and he is a changed person. And that's true for all the disciples. Instead of running and hiding, they are now completely changed because they have seen the risen Lord. And uh, uh, ten of the eleven all were martyred. And that's another evidence. People don't give their life for something that's a lie or something that's just just manufactured. And so all 11 gave their life for the gospel because they knew it to be true because they were witnesses of the resurrection. And so Acts chapter 4, we see the boldness of Peter 
and we see his his response to the to the Sanhedrin. Then we see another example. This is the um, I didn't get this right in the in the list. This is under E. I didn't get uh, D, D right. E is Peter, John, and the Sanhedrin. Peter, John, and the Sanhedrin. Acts four. F is Peter's authority over Ananias and Sapphira in Acts five one through four. And this again shows Peter's leadership. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira were a couple who sold a piece of property, and they wanted to be like uh, Barnabas, who was introduced uh, in, at the end of the previous chapter. Barnabas had some land, sold it, and brought the money, gave all the money to the church. And so they wanted to get all of the approbation like Barnabas had, but they kept back some of the money. Now, there wasn't anything wrong with keeping it back, but they were deceiving everybody. They were implying that they were giving it all to the church when, in fact, they... They kept some back. And so Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart? This is not demon possession. This is putting thoughts into his mind. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Keep back part of the price to the land. While it remained, it was, was it your own. You could have done whatever you wanted to it, to with it. And in verse 5, Ananias heard the words, fell down, and died. Now, Sapphira wasn't with him. She comes in about three hours later, and Peter questions her and says, uh, did you sell the land for this much money? She said, we sure did. And he said, well, why have you conspired with your husband to uh, test the Lord and to test the Holy Spirit? And because of that, you're going to die as well, and she dies uh, immediately as well, the sin unto death. And the purpose for this is to... Uh, put fear into the congregation that this is the work of God and they should not trifle with it. And that's the point in verse 11. So verse 12 gives us another progress report. It's not just Peter and John. But in verse 12 we read, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders. So this is all the apostles. Many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they, that is the uh, disciples, were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dare join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And verse 14, believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So that, notice the miracle reference in verse 15, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. That indicates the they're carrying on the miraculous ministry, the calling card of the kingdom of God that was uh, de- delegated to them from the Lord Jesus Jesus Christ. So then, as a result of all of this, the high priests and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, become very upset with them, and they arrest all of the apostles in verse, verse 18. And then an angel intervenes that night and releases them and tells them to go to the temple and to proclaim the gospel and to teach the words of this life. And so they did that. The next morning they're teaching. Of course, this confounds the Sanhedrin. And they arrest them again and bring them back. And again, they're told uh, not to teach. In verse 28, they're told, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter, verse 29 as the spokesperson, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. And so he presents the gospel again. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. 
Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And that's the point, forgiveness of sins. And, of course, Peter has clearly understood this. The response to this was Gamaliel, who gave them wise counsel and said, this is of God. Uh, leave it alone because it's of God. You can't stop it. If it's not of God, it'll die out on its own. Chapter 6, we see the selection of the uh, six who are going to assist them. Peter's not specifically mentioned there. Chapter 7 is uh, Stephen's address right before he is stoned. Peter's not mentioned there. Uh, we get to chapter 8. Uh, this is the salvation of, uh, our, we're told about Saul of Tarsus who's persecuting the church. And then we're told about Philip who's taken into the area of Samaria. Now here we have a map. Here is Jerusalem down here. This area to the south of Jerusalem is the area of Judea. The area just to the north of Judea up in this area is Samaria. And so uh, now Philip takes the gospel to Samaria, probably in this area, uh, either here at uh, Sychar or here at uh, Sebastia, possibly here. Uh, this is the, still a, a dominant Roman city at this particular time on the site of ancient Samaria. We went there on the last trip to Israel, and uh, it's quite impressive. It's a huge site, but nobody wants to excavate it because uh, the Arabs don't want you coming in there and excavating it because you'll just prove that the Jews have been there for, for uh hundreds and thousands of years, and so they don't want anybody coming in there and excavating. And uh, the archaeologists don't want to go in there because of all the trouble that can arise because of it, so it's basically left uh, unexcavated. There has been some work done in the past, and it's remarkable to see uh, the things that are there. But after there's been this tremendous response to Philip's proclamation of the gospel, then they send to Jerusalem uh, for Peter and John uh, because when they uh, they hear what is going on in uh, what has been going on in Samaria that they had received the word of God they sent for Peter uh, they sent Peter and John to them that is the apostles sent Peter and John this is the last time we're going to hear about John but it's not the last time we hear about Peter Peter is there to open the door to the kingdom that doesn't mean the kingdom's there but uh, eventually, we're all going to be in the kingdom. Uh, he's opening the door with the keys of the gospel, and he, uh, Peter and John will go. And when they come, verse 15, they pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't come upon them like he did at Pentecost until Peter, until the apostles from Jerusalem show up to show there's, that there's a unity in the church. Because the Jews, remember, hated the Samaritans. They're half-breeds. They're, they're, they're not really Jews. They have their own uh, canon of Scripture. They only go through the first five books of Moses. They reject the rest of it. They say that the only place to put the temple is up on Mount Gerizim. And uh, some of us have been up there on Mount Gerizim and walked through the remains of the temple up there. And they had their own uh, calendar, and they did it their own way, and it wasn't according to the fully according to the law of Moses. So... The Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them. So the point here is that there's unity in the body of Christ and that Samaritans are equally a part of the body of Christ, just like the Jews on the day of Pentecost. They received the Holy Spirit in the same way. In verse 16, uh, Luke says, For as yet he, that is the Holy Spirit, had fallen upon none of them, 
they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, that would be Peter and John, laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So, Peter is there to open the doors to the kingdom to the Samaritan believers in Acts chapter uh, Acts chapter 8. And then uh, the next event we see is at the end of chapter 9. Chapter 9 uh, gives us, for the most part, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. This is in uh, approximately 35, the summer of 35, which is two years after the resurrection and ascension of the Lord. And Saul is... Uh, is saved at the beginning of the chapter. Then he begins to uh, preach the gospel in the synagogues, and uh, he causes a lot of disruption because he's very aggressive in his in his uh, evangelism. And so he heads out and goes back back home uh, to to Tarsus. Then in verse um, 32, we come back to Peter came to pass, Peter was traveling through all the parts and came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. Now, Lydda is on the highway uh, to, from, and this is basically this red line that you see here. Uh, it's pretty close to the highway that goes from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. So if you've ever driven along that highway, you've gone right near uh, Lydda, which is to the Joppa. Here is where Tel Aviv is, modern Tel Aviv is, surrounds the old port of Jaffa. Uh, Jaffa. And so he's in Lydda. This is probably about 20 miles or so from, from uh, Joppa, which is where Peter is staying at the time. And he hears about this man, Aeneas, who is paralyzed, can't get out of bed. And so Peter tells him that Jesus, the Messiah, verse 34, Yeshua HaMashiach heals you. Arise, make your bed. He arose immediately. And all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon, this is the plain of Sharon in this area, uh, heard about this. Word spread rapidly. So and then we're told that at Joppa, there's a woman who has been very, uh, very instrumental in dealing and ministering to the needs of the saints and is well respected. She's done a lot of charitable deeds. Uh, in Judaism, this is known as tzedakah, righteous deeds. She's done a lot of, uh, of, of good deeds, of charitable deeds that are, that are honored here. She's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and she dies. And they laid her in the upper room. Now, we studied how the houses in the early church in, at that time in, in Israel were laid out, that there was usually this upper room, just like they had where the Lord and the disciples celebrated uh, Passover, where they met in Acts chapter 1. There's this upper upper room that was used as a guest room or a meeting room or a special time when family and friends were over. And that's where they laid her out. And Peter came in, and Peter uh, has everybody leave the room and kneels down and prays over her and says to her, uh, uh, Tabitha, which was another uh, form of her name, arise. She opened her eyes, saw Peter got up, and he uh, raises her up. And as a result of that miracle, we're told in verse 42, it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So again, Peter is present. And he continues to say with Simon the Tanner. Then we get to the big earth-shattering event, which is dealing with the Gentiles. And this is important as the lead-in to what happens uh, in the last, basically the last thing we know, one of the last things we know about Peter in the in the New Testament. So he is uh, having his time of reflection and prayer 
during the day, and uh, he's staying with Simon the Tanner. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, uh, Cornelius, pay attention, uh, that there's a group of men coming uh, to Joppa, and they're going to be looking for you, and you need to follow them. And then uh, Peter, and then so he's told about this, and then the next uh, the next day, uh, Peter has a vision about the sixth hour, and he sees in this vision this tablecloth coming down from heaven with all kinds of really good food on it. Uh, it's all trafe. It's not kosher. You have lobster and shrimp, and fried catfish, and and uh, bacon. Uh, all kinds of good stuff that is forbidden by the law. And and God says to Peter that you're to rise, kill, and eat. He's got live animals there. He's supposed to kill them, so it's okay to slaughter animals to, to eat. Just want to make sure if anybody wonders about that, you always have people who come out of the pagan environment of the world around us and think somehow it's wrong to kill animals to eat. But God authorized it in the Noahic Covenant, authorizes it here with Peter, and and there's pigs there, and he's supposed to kill these these animals that are alive and eat. And Peter says, no, no, Lord, um, I can't do that. I've never eaten anything common. The Greek word there for common is the word same word koine when we talk about koine Greek, the common language. Uh, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And then the Lord said to him, what God has cleansed, you cannot call common. So you can't talk about bacon or lobster or shrimp as common. Not anymore. It doesn't have anything to do with diet or learning how to cook it properly or kill it properly or anything else. It has to do with the fact that the Mosaic law is no longer in effect and the laws relate, the dietary laws are no longer in effect. The, the distinctions between clean and unclean are no longer relevant to the spiritual life of church age believers because the law is no longer in effect. So three times God has to tell Peter this before he finally gets the point. And then the men come from Caesarea, which is further up the coast here, all the way towards the top of our map, beautiful uh, uh, remains of Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. And so Peter goes there to meet a centurion. Centurions were usually the representation of the Roman Roman army, not positive, but this is a man who is considered, uh, described in verse 22, as a just man who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews. And so he's not a proselyte of the gate, the highest form, but he's very, very focused, very positive. Peter then takes the gospel to them while he is preaching to them. They respond to the gospel. Um, and, and as a result of that, God the Holy Spirit then comes upon them and, uh, they are, they are saved. We look down to verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. This sets up this division among the Jewish believers there of the circumcision. They still think the law is in effect, and they still think that this is the, the gospel is primarily a Jewish thing. 
And now this has blown their whole paradigm, their whole framework, and they're, they're seeing these Gentiles who are being brought in, but they are just flabbergasted because the gift of the Holy Spirit's been poured out on the Gentiles in the same way that it was to the Jews on the day of Pentecost and to the Samaritans and the Samaritan, what's called the Samaritan Pentecost, and now the Gentiles. And who's there each time? It's Peter. That's Luke's point. Peter is there. Peter is opening the door to the kingdom, to the uh, to to the Gentiles now. Now I'm not saying the kingdom's here. The kingdom will come when Jesus comes, but we will be there. The way to get there is to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, and then you'll be in the kingdom uh, when it comes. And that's that's the point. So the door is opened uh, to entry into the church for Jew, Samaritan. And, and Greek. Chapter 11, Peter goes back to Jerusalem, has a confrontation because the, uh, the observant Jews there just can't believe this, and so he defends it. He explains what happened. They respond to it, and he applies to it the baptism statement by John the Baptist that, that Christ would come and baptize with the Spirit in verse 16, and he identifies all of that, and as a result of that, uh, they uh, he says that God has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life, and so they accept that. But there's going to be continued problems with this. Now, we skip to chapter 12, and in Acts chapter 12, uh, Herod, uh, Herod, this is Herod Agrippa I, uh, is the king, and he uh, has he's going to ingratiate himself to the Jews, so he kills James, the brother of John, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Peter's the leader of the apostles, but James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he is he is martyred. And then he arrested uh, Peter and put Peter in prison. And that night, as Peter is bound, he's heard that they've escaped before, so Herod wants to make sure they're not going to escape like they did before. And he binds Peter. on each, There's a guard on each side, and his arms, two chains, uh, his arms are chained to the guard, and his feet are chained to the guard. I can't imagine how that would be comfortable. And so uh, it appears that Peter uh, is dozing off, and he has to be awakened pretty hard. He gets slapped on the side. The word there, he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, said, wake up. So Peter's gotten pretty relaxed now, trusting in the Lord that even though he's chained in prison between a couple of Roman guards, he's not uh, sitting there worrying. He's managed to put it in the Lord's hands and trust in the Lord. And so the Lord sends an angel who frees him. And at the same time, there's a prayer meeting going on in the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And so when he gets to the door, he knocks on the door. This is one of those great humorous scenes. And a servant girl named Rhoda comes to the door to answers it and says, well, who's there? Peter says, it's me, Peter. And she recognizes his voice, gets so excited that instead of opening the door to let him in, she runs back to tell everybody. Peter's outside going, wait. When are they going to let me in? So she goes back, and they said, no, 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 it can't be. He's in prison. You're, he, you know, would God answer our prayers? No, not a chance. So they said, it's his angel. And Peter kept pounding on the door. Finally, they opened the door and let him in. And then there was quite a, um, then there was quite a, a time of rejoicing. 
As a result of this, Peter then probably went into hiding or left town because Peter, because uh, Herod kept searching for him, couldn't find him. And then Herod decided to leave Jerusalem and go back to Caesarea, and then he dies a horrible, painful death because the people are, he's beginning to get delusions of deity, and God's not going to let him uh, cause a problem for the church. And the result of all this, the word of verse 24, the word of God grew and multiplied. The next time we see we see Peter in chapter 13. We see Paul and Barnabas going off on their first missionary journey in chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15. We're back in Jerusalem, back with this conflict. What do we do with the uncircumcised? They've And so they have what's known as the first council, the Jerusalem council. The apostles are there. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem are there. Paul and Barnabas are there. Peter's there. How do we treat the Gentiles? Because... Uh, the Jews are very fastidious still. They're, they're eating according to the law. That's their tradition. Uh, some of that doesn't mean that they all, um, that they were all assigning some sort of spiritual value to it. That's just the way they grew up eating. Some of us grew up eating frog legs and raw oysters and people who come from other parts of the country just can't quite get into that when they come down to southeast Texas and they can't understand the value and the joy of eating frog legs and raw oysters. But that doesn't mean that it's a spiritual issue. It's their culture. It's their background. It's their tradition. And that's we have that as part of the problem is you have observant Jews who have one way of doing things historically, and Gentiles who don't. And how do you put the two together? So what are the issues? So they're hammering out these issues. First person to stand up and to talk is Peter. In verse uh, chapter 15, verse 7, when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he goes back and reminds them of what happened with Cornelius. And so he straightens them out that the Gentiles come um, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we aren't supposed to put a yoke on their neck. Verse 10, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? And so everybody sits there quietly realizing that, yeah, we made a mistake. Then Barnabas and Paul stood up and said basically the same thing, describing all the ways God was working through them uh, among the Gentiles. And then James, and this is James, the author of the epistle to James, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, said, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon's declared how God has first visited the Gentiles to take them out of the people, and he reminds them of all of this. And they basically come to a conclusion that they're only going to ask the Gentiles to avoid eating things uh, that have eating, eating meat that still has the blood in it and to avoid adultery and to respect uh, the Jews in what their um, uh, their observance. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Number one, abstain from things offered to idols. Uh, two, abstain from blood. Uh, three, abstain from things strangled. And four, from sexual immorality, and if you keep yourselves from these things, you'll do well. So that way, if they can follow that, then we can have harmony in the church. Jew and Gentile can worship together. That's the last time we hear about Peter in the book of Acts. From that this point on, it's all about Paul. 
But there's one other episode that took place just prior to the Jerusalem Council. Now, there's debate among theologians and Bible scholars, but most, uh, I won't say most conservatives, because some of them are conservative, but most conservatives would argue, I think, uh, at least the ones that I've consulted and dealt with and reading through all the all the different literature, is that Peter Peter fails in in maintaining his his decorum around uh, the, the the Gentiles and the Jews badly, and Paul has to rec- reprimand him in Galatians chapter two. It doesn't seem that the an event like Galatians two would happen after all of this that has gone on at the Jerusalem Council. So most people put uh, the events in Galatians chapter 2 occurring uh, probably uh, six months to a year before the Jerusalem Council. So as we wrap up, I just want to go over to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, very briefly to point out what happened there. This is a situation where Peter has now gone up north to Antioch. Now, Antioch's not on this map. It's all the way up to the north, up in Syria, uh, where there's now a large church that's comprised both of Jew and Gentiles. Peter came to uh, Antioch, and Paul says in verse 11 that he had to challenge Peter. In verse 12, the reason is given that beforehand certain men had come from James, that is, from the church in Jerusalem, from James the uh brother of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for up to this point, uh, Peter was having a great time socializing and eating with the Gentiles. Now, an observant Jew under the law would not ever eat with a Gentile, wouldn't go into a Gentile's house, wouldn't have anything to do with a Gentile. But now that they understand that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is broken down, Peter's thoroughly enjoying grace and he's enjoying getting up every morning and having a BLT, and he's enjoying uh, having a lobster for dinner and uh, pork chops and fried pork chops and everything else that you get in the South. Uh, he was enjoying all that kind of food. But once these representatives from the church in Jerusalem came, he began to feel very self-conscious. And he gradually, because the use of the imperfect tense here indicates that it's a gradual process, he quit having such a good time his conscience was bothering him because his conscience was formed before he uh, understood grace when he was still under the law. And now he's thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't do this. And so he separates himself from the Gentiles. And Paul says, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So he's influenced all the other Jews in Antioch. And now they're not having anything to do with the Gentiles. And they're all members, and, you, you, and they're all one in the body of Christ. So Peter has created this division that has occurred in the church of Antioch, and so Paul has to uh, straighten this out. So verse 14, Paul said, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all of them. Now, why did he confront Peter publicly instead of individually? Because it had become a public issue. It was no longer a private issue. It was a public issue causing a great public division within the body of Christ, so it had to be hammered out in public. And he said to Peter, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not, we are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, because we know, and there's our great verse, 
because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So he's applying the doctrine of justification by faith alone that's not related to the law to the issue with Peter and saying, Peter, you're dead wrong. And Peter, in humility, responded and uh, repented, which in the biblical sense means to change your mind and going back to doing it the right way. So that's the background on Peter. So what we've learned when we study all of this about Peter is that Peter is, as uh, Acts chapter 2 points out, Peter is the apostle to the circumcised. He is the apostle to the Jews, and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So Peter has a particular ministry to Jewish believers. Now, in the background to understanding First Peter, I have a lot of people who want to say that Peter wrote this from Rome to, to Christians in Rome and that he is uh, writing to uh, a mixed group of, of Jewish and Gentile believers. The reality is that he specifically states that he's used, and he uses two terms, uh, the term for aliens, which is a term that was applied to Jews that were scattered in the diaspora, and the term diaspora in the first verse. He's writing to Jewish believers to specifically address issues that they would have, but they relate to all of us in the body of Christ. And so uh, as he does that, he is going to draw on these past experiences and issues, and we'll be referring back to them many times as we hit different passages. But what Peter has learned which is going to be a major issue in First Peter, is that we have to learn to, to live today in light of eternity. When Peter saw the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured in his glory, he got a foretaste. He got a preview of the coming attractions of the millennial kingdom. And that thread runs all through First, First Peter, that you may encounter all kinds of suffering, some deserved, a lot undeserved in this life. But don't let that get you down. Focus on the end game, which is when we're going to realize our inheritance in the coming kingdom. And that's the focal point. So we'll start off with our, or we'll continue in verse 1 next time. Father, thank you for this time to study these things, to be reminded of grace that Peter learned. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is not based on who we are, what we've done. It's not based on Jew or Gentile. It's based upon, uh, exclusively upon everything Jesus did on the cross and that salvation is by faith alone, believing on his work on the cross. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, give us a desire to go back and reread Acts and to rethink through Peter's life and to make these things really a part of our soul, memorizing some of these great statements that Peter made in Acts, that they may be part of our thinking and embedded in our soul, that God the Holy Spirit can use that to uh, recall these things in the times that we need it, the times of testing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.